Good morning, GM everyone. Welcome back to the Polymath Experience. I'm your host, Polymath. Today, we have someone who was destined for this life. He's a child of the internet, as well as a child of the art world, which is a match made in heaven for our market. A lot of people, I think, me included, uh, heard about him for the first time when Sotheby's announced that they that they were hiring him. Uh, and, and I'm looking forward to hearing about that. And I, for me, you are one of the most recognizable art curator, like traditional art type people that are in Web3 and that are connecting these two spaces. Arthur Moore, welcome to the show. Thank you, Pudi. Thank you for having me. And yeah, I guess there's a few of us that, that has those two hats from the art market and the NFT world, but uh, not many of us for sure. You know, people are usually very lucky about their involvement in the art market and stuff like that. Mm. Uh, and yeah, so little story when Sotheby's announced that they hired me, they also, by the same occasion, doxed me to everyone, which wasn't the plan. It wasn't the plan. <laughs> I didn't know that. So that was a good way to start out. But uh, yeah, they, no, it wasn't the plan at all. <laughs> it wasn't the plan. Well, I was at least expecting to dox myself, uh, not being doxed by my employers, but, well, you know, that's how it is. <laughs> Yeah, when, when it's, once it's done, it's done. But it's, it is tricky. Like even I, I was not doxxed for the longest time and I was struggling with people's identity. We, we don't really have, uh, a clear path for that yet. How is that? How is this, um, this time that you did it? So the bees and, and, and like being at the, at the edge of both of those two worlds. Well, it was a bit like I expected, honestly. I mean, I had much more liberty than I did expect, though. But, uh, you know, I had plenty of time to prepare myself because I, I think I applied in February and had like a dozen interview over the span of like over four months. That was really long. <laughs> and uh, I ended up, yeah, I think I ended up having a formal offer in like July. So, yeah, it was like over four months of recruiting process. So they had a bit enough time to actually think about it but yeah i mean overall it was a cool cool experience and uh and the idea was that i wanted to have an impact in the in the nft market and i was getting priced out as a character from the market and so i was thinking what what could i do to have still some impact and i guess working for you know quite established art company that has this sort of institutional reputation in the in the web world uh, was a good way to go about it, and especially just for me to have an impact, which was my aim. Cap did it successfully for some, at, some, at some some scale. So, so yeah, that was the idea. I just I joined there because I know this would provide me with further opportunity to support artists and support you know things I like. That's really cool. And, and so, how what was it like exactly? What what did you do when 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 you were there? What were your days, your weeks like? It depends. I mean, at first I was in charge of setting up the department in Paris. So there was a lot of back and forth about just fiscality and just how to set up the teams and, and just system for us to handle sales from Paris. But that took at very least six months. So for the first six months, I was mostly working with Hong Kong and with New York. The first thing I did with New York was to manage their uh, Salgado project. 
they were they had in the pipeline for a few years and they were launching I think just a month after I joined. It was a lot of time on Discord, a lot of time on strategizing for that means and dealing with a few technical problems, stuff like that. That was a bit different from what they usually do at Sotheby's because they, they rarely do drops with mints, uh, etc. They do at times with Sotheby's Metaverse, but that's not the big part of their activities. And from then, it was to uh, work with Hong Kong for a few cons- what we call consignments. So uh, what they have in auction houses is they have a date for sales, usually three to four months from the moment they have it. And you have to consign a few works to match a sort of uh, a targeted price aim, which is usually half a million dollars at the very least uh, to just have the, the minimum to make a sales. And, um, and so first thing I did, I think was to, they asked me if I knew about any Asian NFT artist that could be nice to include in, in Sotheby's. And I was like, well, of course I know some, but uh, I think there is some people that in the space that specific work on those topics that might be good to partner with. And so I put them in touch with NFT Asia, which is a sort of artist collective. Um, and for the first time, uh, so they, they consigned to them a few artworks, uh, from Grand Tune and Ruben Wu and a few artists like that they never had at Sotheby's. It's awesome. Uh, and it was pretty, pretty successful. I mean, the, the, the sales went really well and the Grand Tune and Ruben Wu did fetch pretty interesting amounts. Um, so yeah. And since then, I always try to sort of have collaborative, approach to things, especially with Sotheby's, because I think even if they do have some sort of reputation, they were still looking and needing some sort of legitimization tools for them. And I think the collaboration with already established initiative in Web3 is a good way to legitimize yourself as, a, as an, act, an actor within that space. So that was, yeah, for the first, let's say, one, two, two months, that was that. And then I was actually about to organize auction of myself. The first one I did was in, in New York. It was the, in January 2023, it was the Delucris solo auction. And whenever you do that, you do pretty much. Yeah, Delucris is an artist I've been working for a few years now. I didn't know that. I saw, I saw him in your, in your wallet and I was in a group that, that pushed him heavily. And I was actually considering buying some pieces for, for a while. Yeah, he's a. Uh, uh, first, I'm working on a solo show for him to be held in Paris sometime or next. Oh, so that, that okay, nice. <laughs> and what would you? What would you? What would be your like your go to buy from Delucas right now? Like if you if you didn't have like that big of a budget, so where where would you start? Well, that's why I did recently a few weeks ago. I spent. Uh, 11,000 Tezos on a work from Delucris. Uh, but it was, it's actually something you buy in Tezos, but you actually get in if. And I thought Tezos were way much down than if was. So it was a bit of an arbitrage situation between if and Tezos. Uh, there is a specific edition called the Corruption Serum. And if you buy it, you can corrupt one Tezos edition and make it a one-on-one on if. Can, can you show us the, the pieces? Absolutely. I've been in, in this space for a while too. So I've known about Tezos for a long time and especially because they're French, right? Tezos, uh, Swiss, but, uh, yeah. Swiss. Wow. French close speaking. enough. Yeah. I, I, I remember seeing them at a conference in, in Paris where Xavier Niel and the whole shebang was there. And, and I never, I, I just never got it. It, 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 it even to this day, 
now that I have a little bit more, like I took a little bit more of a step back, I, I don't understand what they're doing. I don't see the appeal <laughs> per se. So that's an entire debate of its own, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, Tezos has, you know, had trouble literally since it started, was one of the largest ACO ever. And it was one of the very much critical ICO because it did not give out any token from ICO investors. And, and so there was a drama and, and, you know, it's difficult to, it's difficult to mint and to, to literally, you know, write codes on Tezos as well. And Tezos is not that supportive of his artistical environment, but the reason why Tezos has become such an important place for NFT, uh, is because of, Ikenuk and Rafael Lima being a, a, a Brazilian artist and the idea that because Minkas were so inexpensive, it opened up the gate to a lot of artists from uh, developing countries that wouldn't be able to mint NFT on, on ETH because back then, you know, it would cost you 30, yeah. 40 bucks to mint an NFT on ETH. If you're a guy that is from, you know, Indonesia, I think the average uh, monthly salary in Indonesia is something like 200 bucks. So spending you know, a quarter, uh, 20% of your, of your monthly salary and just minting an NFT is ludicrous. Um, so most of those artists went to Tezos because it would cost them just a fraction of a cent to do so. Fair enough. Um, and that's how this sort of artistical ecosystem on Tezos actually happened. It's mostly artists from Brazil, from South America, from Africa, from Southeast Asia and Middle East and some, you know, places where they don't really have much income. That's good. I'll ask for a few names. You know what? I'm, I'm going to take this as a sign. I'm going to figure out how to bridge some Tezos and, and I'll, I'll ask you for names and I'll, and I'll go, uh, collect some, something. Sure thing. You can check out my, my, if you do type artemor.tez, you will see all my collection on Tezos as well. So yeah, the serum of Delucres works like that. Uh, you got a correction. Uh, you have an addition on Tezos. You buy the serum. It creates a custom one on one on ETH. And from there, uh, you, you, so there's all the eligible monster you can, you can have and can use. I've corrupted this one, which is an addition of five. Uh, and the, the green one, the loudspeaker. Yeah. yeah the loudspeakers to produce nice. what they call the mega speakers, uh, that I will show you on Lucrece. Uh, and his style is just, uh, yeah, yeah it's very special. Like the style, he, he does manage really well, all this sort of mechanic and fusion and evolution and just the sort of utility aspect that arts often is lacking. Uh, it does manage that quite well. So you'll see right there uh, how that works. So if you have this original one, then it makes a custom one. It's usually double or just, you know, some sort of extension of it. Um, and yeah, so that's a way to buy literally a if the uh, artwork from, from the decrease for, for Tezos. And I spent, so 11 Tezos was something around six, 7,000 euros. Uh, and you know, is floor on ETH for 101 is, you know, monster is about, is at least eight, nine ETH. Uh, and then his addition are usually roughly one to two ETH. So you have to effectively getting a one on one that is custom. That is one of his most sought after series. The anything with the red is usually some sort of considered premium in a way. Um, and mm. you're getting it for just, I, I guess, discount, but just you, you're getting it for, I think, pretty affordable prices in, uh, if, when you consider everything. 
but otherwise, this Mon series is already nice, really nice addition. And you know, the best of the best is of course the Monster series, but those are usually retailing between thirty to thirty-five thousand dollars. So it's not for everyone, but yeah. At least you're, yeah, people listening are already getting value because they, they know of uh, at least the first few ones will get uh, an interesting arbitrage uh, opportunity. And so you, you do keep the, the edition on Tezos as well. You just, that you just get the serum sending back. So that's the only thing you lose within the transaction. But you actually don't burn the Tezos edition, which can be expensive at times as well. That's, that's really cool to know. Let's go back a little bit. What's... um. Because when we were talking, the two things that obviously pop out is uh, your background in the art world, the fact that you've been raised around this, that you've uh, probably like seen things, heard things, learned things that that um, most people who don't don't like. You're an internet child. You're you you were born with it, and you saw it evolve. And so both of these things. Uh, I'd bet uh, heavily impacted who you are today as a person and, and, and made like primed you, prepared you for the Web3 world. D can you like recollect in either of those specific moments, specific things that you learned, specific things that you went through that really um, prepared you for that? Some of the key dates were, uh, so I'm from like a very privileged background and my parents do have like two passion work that was, that was traveling and collecting contemporary art pretty much. But it was, those are were really two exclusive passions. So they didn't necessarily sort of did any sort of education about it or, you know, pedagogy or whatever. So it was really up to us to get interested into it. Uh, but the first sort of, uh, sorry, I keep getting notification. Uh, so yeah, one of the first things that was most important to me was when I was a child, my parents got me to, uh, brought me to the Tate Museum when there was the weather project from artist Olafur Eliasson. And since then, this artist has been one of my favorite artists ever. And this project is well known with art history and just is considered as a major exhibition that, that happened for the in this like in the 21st century. It was all immaterial in a way, so it's an installation that just play with lights. Uh, it's a huge orange sun that this specific light spectrum has the specificity to take away all co all other colors from the visible spectrum. So when you got there, everything is black, your, your skins, your, your clothes, your, it's really hard, it's really hard experiences. Um, so that was the first sort of approach to me of like as sort of a Erika light belt moment uh, that I was getting into art. Um, and after that, uh, the other sort of key date was uh, the Bill Viola uh, exhibition in the Grand Palais in 2014. Uh, that was the first time I saw video art, digital art presented in a museum grade exhibition with, you know, monumental display and just something you could say, oh, that's video, but that, that's actually, you know, Art that deserves to be in a museum, so that that was something rare as well, and that uh, isn't uh, you know you don't see many exhibits. Yeah, common story. And after that, I guess the big other big moment was just uh, Crypto Kitties and just you know getting you know turning eighteen, sort of thinking about what I was going to be working in and what what was going to be my vocation, things like that. This came from mostly uh, a passion and sort of a fascination for counterfeiters, uh, the people that make fake artwork. And there was this other guy that was 
really fascinated by this notion of authenticity counterfeiters that was talking about blockchain back then, uh, as early as in 2016. His name was Jason Bailey, uh, also known as Artnome. It's one of the first person I followed online talking about just blockchain art and provenance tracking and uh, possibilities and all those different notions. And so that's sort of how I started to get interested in the application of blockchain to the art market. And just, you know, I was back then, I was just entering a sort of bachelor in, in business. Uh, I was really bored there and I didn't really got really interested by anything there. But I, I took that opportunity that I had many internships to intern in galleries, auction houses, and also blockchain-related art company. Uh, there was a few out there in like 2017, 2018 that launched with several ICO and stuff like that. So like Codex Protocol, Masenas, you had uh, Additional, you had uh, Ascribe, even Super R was just launching back then and things like that. Oh, nice. They, they did a presentation at the Architect Summit by uh, Christie's in 2018, if I believe, uh, that I sadly missed because I was working <laughs> as an intern back then. It's too bad because I, I missed out on the Lost Rubbies giveaway. Those are worth like, I don't know, half a million <laughs> now. Wow. Wow. An internship there. Yeah, if you don't know the story of the Lost Rubies, it's quite fascinating. So there was uh, the launch of Super R presented with Jason Bailey, George Bach, I think a few other people like that, Bernadette Broker that had Vastery. Um, and it's the first mint on Super R. And so they distributed 300 cards with a sort of QR code back to it. You can claim an NFT. Most people don't understand what it was. Most people, I guess, threw away the card or discarded. And so out of the 300 that was ever Distributed only 2023 20, were 20 or 23, something like that were minted. Um, so it's now has some sort of historical value to show how the art market back then didn't understand anything about Web3, NFTs and things like that. So it has mm. become sort of historical. Ah, oh, that's insane. And I have a friend that actually did an internship on the event, kept the card and only claimed it. I think a few years ago when I asked her about it, when she told me she interned on the event and she literally is on one NFT and that's a lost Robbie. So it's literally worth a point wow. of like half a million dollars and things like that. So yeah, it was literally the treasure in an attic sort of story because she was, it was left on the ba- in a bag in, a, in an attic. Uh, so, so yeah, it was you no know, sort of treasure found wasn't expected. But yeah, so that's a bit of things are like key dates of my involvement. And, uh, and yeah, the last one, I guess, was uh, when people did his first mint on NFT Getaway, where he technically has another mint that was an auction on ETHCC sometime, but that's not, that's just anecdotic. But his first considered Genesis mint is, uh, is edition of Project is Bullshit on, on NFT Getaway. And I just, you know, because I knew about blockchain and art and stuff, whenever he saw it, tell me that it, it sort of, shared on, on Instagram that he was doing NFT and that he didn't really understand or know what he was about, but he was just pretty much digital art on the blockchain. So sort of things sort of clicked and uh, and so I sort of started collecting on NFT Getaway uh, pretty much in mid-2020. And yeah, and before that, I just I collected a few crypto art projects that were not NFT. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's the gist of it. And I've seen, I remember I First exhibition of CryptoPunk at the Kate Vass Gallery, but there's like dates like that and things that, yeah, important dates in both the history of crypto art and just of my involvement in art, digital art, blockchain arts, and then NFTs. Hey there, it's me again. Um, if you're enjoying the content, you're going to enjoy this because you're going to have the ability to support us. I want to tell you about our partner, Wasabi Protocol. 
it's an option-based protocol that allows people to make bets on certain NFT collections. But that's not all, because what is right now NFTs could be anything in the future that is tokenized. They are on the brink of powering one of the most important layers of the future financial markets. I'll give you a couple examples of how you can use it right now. Imagine you have an NFT that's gained a lot of value because there's been a speculative um, hike and you want to keep that NFT because it's dear to you, but you also want to capture some of its value. After it's increased a lot, you could bet that the price will decrease by staking a little bit of capital and capture some of that value on the way down, which means that you get both of those aspects that are important to you. You get money, but you also get to participate. And the second one is, if you're convinced that a collection is gonna go up, you can bet on that by risking some capital and not the price of the whole asset if you don't have it. Go check it out. The links are in the description. Uh, wasabi.xyz slash r slash the polymath experience. Thank you so much for checking them out and thank you so much for using that referral link. If you do, always do your research. Only use tools and amounts that you're comfortable with. Remember that all financial investments carry risk and back to the episode now it's awesome because it, it really yeah you you were there at key dates and key times and in not in the it's kind of cool to see stories that are outside of the holy shit let's get a lot of money narrative and and really like you know you went through the deep end uh and and yeah got a got a really cool story to tell and, and by being around art all the time you must have learned things even if there was not like you know an actual hey kids sit down and let us tell you about uh art and art collecting by your parents you have like you had to pick up a few things and so there has to be things that uh, come more naturally to you than it does other people because this wave has brought in a, a lot of people who want to trade but also want to collect and and what did you learn that you think would help them me too <laughs> i'm in yeah, that yeah, yeah. wave i guess i've didn't learn didactic things but i've learned it quite heuristically in a way so you make connection you don't even realize you do uh, there's a notion of just you know training your eyes for the art as well so i guess that you know if you're surrounded by great art you by definition train your eye on good things and so you tend to be more capable of recognizing interesting stuff and yeah just this notion of flair and eyes that you know that are inherent to the art world uh, those are things that i might have benefit through years of exposure to those notions to those artists to exhibition to things like that uh, and just i guess you know just basic knowledge on some practice in the art market that some people that start out are still a bit naive about about sort of what's going on behind the curtains uh, and it also, I guess, helped me not being too intimidated by the art world because I think that's something most people are really intimidated by art and intimidated by the art world. They don't, you know, they wouldn't imagine themselves pushing the door of a gallery or going to an auction houses, even though it's free and anyone can join and anyone can attend any auction houses and any sales. There's even some people that are known to be just going from 
uh, exhibition to exhibition just to eat at the buffet, <laughs> for example. <laughs> oh, that's a good call. Yeah, there's some people like my mom used to do that when she went to, um, she had a scholarship to attend Wharton Business School and she went there and at the time, I think, you know, she, she was 65 or at the time, the, the dollars were really strong. And so she didn't have much buying powers in euros than she expected. And so she used to go from, yeah, gallery opening to gallery opening just to eat because she, just, she could barely afford food. Um, so there's a bunch of people that do that <laughs> and just, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Grasshopping, you know, literally just hopping from exhibition to exhibition just to eat. So it just shows that anyone can join an exhibition at any age. You can be dressed. You can, you can be dressed up as a bump. That doesn't impact anything. It just you, Nobody will ever pre- prevent you to enter a gallery on the opening date or something like that. It's There's no private invitation. It's always free and, and public. Oh, that's cool. That's I'll, I'll keep that in mind. What What do you Why do you think you you talked about some people maybe being naive about certain things? What did you have in mind? Well, you know, some people think that you just need to be great art to be to be a great artist to be successful. But you know, there's sometimes there's a lot of, of mechanism system that you we don't really realize exist. Um, like for example, some galleries they they have you know one best selling artist uh, and that sort of enable them to present other artists. And sometimes you have a waiting list. Like it just you can be a billionaire. It doesn't mean you can doesn't mean you can buy whatever you want on the art world. You need to be on the list. You need to be in the small paper of the galleries to to be to do so. It's a bit like you know when you want to buy really luxury handbag or, or watches. There's a list of waiting, and sometimes you have to buy something else in order to buy these things you wanted to have. Uh, so there's all those system that uh, are a bit odd that are a bit peculiar to the art world that we just don't realize did exist uh, but yeah it's typical for example that you, let's say you want to buy a damnier piece from whichever gallery they will tell you well if you want that piece you must buy this other piece from that you know small artist we have in the gallery otherwise i won't sell it to you um so there's all the system like that that blurs and makes this world really obscure mm-hmm. and uh and yeah, we just think that you no know, people have the money; they buy what they want. That's not necessarily true in the primary market base. Um, yeah, that's some of the things that are really peculiar, I guess, to the art world. That's so interesting. Yeah, there's there's really I, I completely understand the naivete thing because it's like when you're an entrepreneur and you think you only need to create a great product in order to to succeed, and it's not the case like there's always a human component there's always a connection network component do do you see do you see these types of like dynamics happen in the now with this like burgeoning web3 art uh, space yeah most most certainly so i mean it's the nft space is paradoxical in many aspects one especially in the narrative of adoption and mass adoption it's all about onboarding people, but in the same time, it's all about exclusivity. And so those things are a bit paradoxical. You either be, you know, you are either very open or very exclusive. And the NFC space pretend to do both. So, and this is the same thing with art. You know, this is notion of art should be democratized, but in the same times, only really wealthy people are actually in, uh, interacting with it or being involved with it. Uh, so yeah, there's this notion, for example, but I'm sure there's 
plenty other parallels we can do. But uh, yeah, the NFT market, even though it's quite a parallel market, actually have a lot of the same actors involved within it. Uh, actually have a lot of the same mechanism practice uh, and are closer from each other than both might think actually. Uh, so yeah, that certainly is, I think, something that we're also being reinforced uh, moving on as the market sort of concentrates on specific collection and uh, and sort of, yeah, reinforce itself. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of parallels to be made, obviously. It's quite just same thing, but different in a way. Yeah. If you were, uh, if you were president of the Web3 art space, what would you do? What would you do different? Like, what would be your laws so that we have, like, I don't know, better experience for collectors, better experience for artists? Um, I guess enforce, enforcing royalties actually on chain would be nice because so far it's just on platform and, you know, it's been quite a, a roller coaster on that topic about what should be done and what's, how should it be done, etc. That would be, I guess, the first thing. And then also sort of stop having censorship on NFT because there's plenty. There is, you know, OpenSea, whenever they receive a DMCA, even if it's an artwork that fall under fair use to just delist it right on and suppress it uh, without getting the artist any notice or any chances to contest that DMCA request, which is they do have that opportunity in the Tradart world. So I don't see why they don't say in Web3, that seems ludicrous. Uh, you know, OpenSea also prevents Iranian artists to means prevent a bunch of nationality to participate in it to it. And it's most of the time the nationality that most need it. Uh, I did a few exhibitions about the Middle East and North Africa about how NFT was a tool of emancipation, was a tool of, you know, to counteract censorship and state control to fiat currency. Uh, so they are the, sort of the country that must need it uh, and they don't get the chance to participate in it. And I guess the last sort of measure I would have is try to sort of make it, make the space more polyglot. Uh, it's really anglophone. And if you're someone that's from a country where, you know, the level of English is not that, that, that important, how do you expect a bonding? Those people will never be able to do so. Um, I'm not even sure the Bitcoin white paper is translated in Arabic and in that many languages itself. Might be, I might say something wrong, but if you're an Arabic speaking person and you're trying to find documentation on NFT, good luck. You'll not find any. What was, uh, what was that experience like working on those exhibits, working with these artists from, from countries that are not in the mainstream current of English speaking and, and how Because you've, you've worked in traditional art, you work in, in like hyped Web3 art, and you've worked in now like more humanitarian. How was the perception of that art? How did it, how did it do? So I did that exhibition quite early on. It was at the Menart Art Fair. So it's an art fair that focused on Middle East and North Africa. Uh, it was early 2021, I believe. Uh, so February or March 2021. Mm. Uh, so it was quite early on, but even back then, those artists felt like a bit on the sideline of this entire movement because they didn't really speak good English. They were in very different situation. But the thing that came clear to me that there was an opportunity for them, that was just not a financial tool for them, but really as something else 
one of the examples that was the most striking was when I was working with Kurdish artists. Uh, you know, in Kurdistan, when you're you're born in so in, in actual Turkey, uh, they strip you out of your Kurdish name. They give you a Turkish name. Um, so most of the artists, the first time they were able to sign artwork with their real Kurdish name was in NFT because they wouldn't be able to do it in the national uh, in Turkey because they were an ostracized and, and, and you know, I mean, we know the Kurdish uh, situation with, with Turkey, it's quite difficult. And so for them, it was really something else than just a financial tool. It was a way for them to actually exist with their complexity as individual and to, to live free. And one of the uh, examples was one artist that flees Syria during the, the war against ISIS, rather than, you know, traversing Middle East and the Mediterranean Sea with cash and jewelry in his pocket he, he actually bought if and so and because he bought it at early 2020 and it was a really good situation when it pumped during the bar run uh, so you know that's one of the few stories of i know of a refugee that go away from his home because it's, it's a war zone and end up in in europe being a millionaires uh, <laughs> can you give me i, I want to have him on the podcast that would be insane That'd be a really yeah, cool story. Asking, you know, people that are in artists in exilium, they, they sometimes don't really want to be recognized as yeah, such. So I can ask him, uh, but yeah, it's 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 a peculiar situation that they are really touchy about sometimes. So gotta be mindful of that. But I can, yeah, sure. of course, uh, ask him to participate if if he's up to it for sure. Yeah, and. AI is going to do a lot of good, I think, because it's going to break down that barrier of language. It's going to allow, we're not, we're not completely there yet because the costs of, I was talking to a company called Wondercraft who they can very seamlessly take my voice in English and transcribe it into uh, Spanish or, or French. But it's like for a podcast episode, it would, it would cost them like $300. So it's not, it's not really doable. But in the coming years, the cost is going to go way down. And so you're going to have people from Africa who don't speak a word of English who are seamlessly participating in, in, in that market. And so when you have uh, an open financial system and you have an open, open technological system that breaks down the language barrier, then, then, then we could see some real magic happen, I think. Hopefully so, but it's crazy. We have to wait on AI to do so. You know, I feel... This is part of the ideal. I know. Don't start me on that. I'm really surprised that he hasn't been done already, to be honest. Uh, but yeah, surely it would help. Uh, and that's most of the time how I was interacting with those artists because we were writing to each other in English. They were mostly using Google Trad to sort of exchange with me. Uh, so yeah, it, it facilitated the exchange. But you know, even though with Google Trad and some tools, there is still some miscom miscommunication happening, few mishaps, few mis Listening and Kipoko. So that's part of it, but that will surely helps, hopefully. So I didn't really thought about it this way, but now that you mention it, makes sense. Yeah. And now that you say what you said, it, it's nuts that I, that I'm now counting on machines to, to, to do that because it is part of the ethos, but I guess it's still like we're greedy little humans and, and we care about the next big thing, the next big shiny thing. And so we, we, if it, if it's too much hassle to understand what's happening or to make ourselves understand or understood, then yeah, we don't do it. And we focus on something that we do understand. What is art? What for you is art and why do people buy it? 
because I know that psychology is one of those things that you also like to fuck around with. So yeah, what yeah, is it I'll, and why? So the question, what is art? I'm sort of trying to disregard it a bit. I mean, it's been a question of art history for as long, and I would sort of, you know, abide from the Duchantienne definition of art being whatever an artist decided it is, as long as he signed it and as an artistic intention to it. It can be a urinoir, can be a toilet, can be whatever you want, as long as you decide it is. Uh, and then on why people do buy it, I often refer to the the theory of the of the sociologue Bourdieu, which is a French sociologue, and the notion of cultural, social, and financial capital, being which that every individual with a high financial capital tend to use that financial capital to acquire and gain social and cultural capital. And that's especially true in France, I believe, where, you know, if you look at the billionaires in France, they all are involved in the cultural world. Patrick Drahi owns Sotheby's, uh, François Pinault owns Christie's, uh, and then you have, you know, uh, the guy from LVMH, Bernard Arnault, that has the LVMH Foundation in Paris. Pinot also has the Bourse of Commerce, so they all have their own little private museum. And I think that's because in France, being rich as fuck is not enough to be respected. In the US, if you have a ton of money, people respect you, things you are successful, things that you must be really smart, etc. In France, we do value still a lot the fact that you can be accepted within intellectual circles. And I think that's the objective of many billionaires in France and many people that have wealth is to also be able to be part of a higher cultural social life and yeah it's like all people make fun of like the traders in in, in you know in la defense that makes a ton of money but go back to the house alone, alone with the little pasta box and stuff and this life seems absurd to us because to, to us it's something like they don't actually believe uh, in the u.s they will be regarded as you know very respected individual and they might be invited and stuff etc so I guess, yeah, in France, I think depending on the country and culture, we do value differently social, cultural, and financial capital. But the one thing that is for sure is that anyone with high financial capital at some point need to use that capital to acquire other things, to have either an impact on the world. But, you know, if you donate to, you know, to save the baby seals, you, that might acquire you a lot of social capital and compassion and, you know, sort of, you know, something that people actually like you. And if you're, you know, someone that has a bit more involvement in art, if you finance whatever art project and stuff like that, that can get you a bit of social point as well. So I think there's a lot to it, but then there's the specific case of true art collectors that are inherently people with a mental problem, which is, you know, an obsessive compulsive disorder of buying artwork and accumulating stuff. Uh, they, so there are specific species and they, they honestly it's, yeah, it's, it's at some point psychological problem uh, and that are socially accepted, but uh, it's, yeah, it's almost like a Diogen syndrome. It's a, it's an accumulative compulsive disorder that make it so that you, cannot refrain, refrain yourself from buying artwork and are crying a lot of art and stuff like that. Most of the art collectors, they, they have more artwork that they can hang on their wall. And at this point, they, I think, truly are, are art collectors. And there's also like the notion of building a narrative around your collection. I mean, all those different aspects you need to take into account. Uh, but I think that's, in the gist of it, the reason people do buy art. <laughs> Depending on the best. That's side. crazy. It's funny because if, if, like, if I had to answer in just a few words, it would be to make more money. And 
you, you can get tax rebates, right? Or, or like there, there are tax implications sometimes. Depends on the country, but you know, there, there are less advantages that you might think. The most advantageous thing about that is that art is not tax from patrimonial. So if you actually buy a yacht or a car, you pay taxes on it every year because that's part of the capitals. Uh, but effectively, fiscally at least, artwork is considered just as cash on the wall, uh, pretty much that's what it is. It just, it's just cash on the wall. Uh, and so you only pay tax, you can get a tax rebate on it under very specific condition that are I don't have really in mind right now. And they're usually on the resale part of it, on your pre-value that you get tax rebate, but you actually do pay taxes when you buy it. So it's not like a, a tax haven thing like most people think. You can do donation to museum, but out of 200 possible donations that were done to museum, only 20 were accepted uh, last year at least. So it's not something that is super common either. So it's case-by-case basis, but no, usually... There is very few people that buy artwork to make money. They usually buy artworks to, yeah, sort of reduce the patrimonial and so therefore reduce their tax imposition at some point. But it's not, no, I'm sure there's others better way to do it. And I did my thesis on art as an investment and I compared the performance of art investment fund in comparison to the stock market on the same period. And the conclusion was the stock market always outperformed art investment funds on the same period. So if you actually want to make money, uh, art is not the best investment at all, honestly. You, you do have this one out of 100 chance of finding an artist that really pop off. And then, yes, this will cover most of the of the losses you make on your other purchase. But it's a bit of a casino game here. It's a lottery game, which, you know, there's nobody that really can assure you that this artist will worth 10 times more in two, five, 10 years. Anyone that tells you that is lying to you. Um, but uh, yeah, it's mostly, it's rather to acquire the social and cultural capital rather than we acquire more financial capital. Might not be super right. And so what do you make of what's happening here? Because I'm like, I'm going to throw in an outrageous number, but I, I, I'd bet that 70 or 80% of the people buying art, at least on ETH in, in our space are in it because they're expecting it to gain value and to resell it later. Yeah, but that's the case for collectibles. I mean, just like collectibles market is not same, not the same thing as the NFT art market. Uh, and collectibles like, you know, Artifact and CryptoPunks and Bored Ape, they have a very different approach to it. It's not artwork. And it's just like if you're buying collection car or, or Pokemon cards or or handbags or watches. People that do buy watches this day, they buy it for the resale, potential resale value. They, they do fine uh, with it. Uh, there's a bit of a flex aspect to it as well. So there's this notion of social capital too. But this approach of financial gain is more specific to collectibles market than the NFT art one. Uh, and even long-form generative art and collection like the Fidenza and Ringer, because of the large supply is a bit different from one-on-one art and, you know, small series and small edition. So they have market elasticity and notion that are closer to the collectibles market than the actual art market. So there is that, but I mean, the reason for it is also there was the bull one, a speculative bubble could make, it makes sense for them, I guess, uh, to, to, to leverage those different systems and, you know, flip 
is exists in the art world as well, but you often have contract that prevents you to sell stuff right on or right after you bought it. So just because it was the far west and it was starting out, it was a free for all, and you know, people that wanted money came in and make money, which whichever way they could. But their intention always was financial gain for sure. So then it's a game of hot potatoes, you know. It's whether whichever is the last one to hold the potatoes that get burns. There's not much to it that is art-related, to be honest. It's just a speculative market, and voila. And so, and so, and voila. And so, what does that make you as a as a curator? What's your role if it's not to? Because I I sort of pictured it as a like art advisor, and and in that sense was here's art that's going to gain value in the future. But you're saying that that's not the case. So, what's the role of art curators? Well, first, I'm too starting to say less and less than I'm an art curator because just to give you an example for the exhibition I did at uh, Paris Photo uh, yeah. two weeks ago, the curation took me three hours. The exhibition to organize took me three weeks. So curation is a small part of the, of the job I do. Uh, but the difference is it's a need. So as an art advisor, who, who hires you? In people that want to invest in art. So then you're making a collection plan with a notion, with a, with a team, with an objective. It can be ROI, but it can be different things. And then, yes, you're making projection. You cannot make promises like as any investment fund. There's no, there's no promises of specific returns. There's an idea of how much, but there's always a notion of risk and you can lose it all. And that's part of the game. But you can think about a collection plan with in mind, the ROE aspect of it. That's for sure. Um, as a curator, the people that hire you are most of the time venues. Uh, so your Web3 events, you have a gallery, you have a museum. Those are the people that hire curators. And they hire you to suggest a list of artists on a specific team. Um, as I did, for example, this exhibition on Middle East and North Africa at the fair uh, early 2021, I then got... Uh, a job as a curator for an event in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia that I think was a three day long exhibition. And they hired me to do a proposition of several artists to be included because there's not been people like me that had a listing with artists that were specifically from those country and working in NFTs. And so for them to save the time of looking all around to find that's really, you no know, they were actually asking me because I already have catalog everything. I have my listing. So they save time. So most of the time you buy, you, you are your curator to save time on the curational process or to come up with non-commercial thematical exhibition it can be writing text can be a huge part of the curatorial job. So yeah, it's different, different job dealers, art advisor, curator gallerists. It's mixed and it's like an umbrella term in the in the NFT world. We use curator as an umbrella term for all those different jobs, uh, but they are actually different jobs. So yeah, it depends on who you address, who are your client, how do you work with them on which basis. So yeah, that's that's where the difference lies. If that's clearer, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I mean, it's not clearer. It, it raises more questions, but it, 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 it shows me a little bit more about basically what is it that you do. Uh, I actually just thought of something that could be really cool if you're up for it. Like if I said right now, I, I'd like to build a portfolio only in NFT, only in crypto art, in Web3 art for like 25 ETH. Could, could you like help me like, and, and maybe share your screen as well of, picking out, you know, um, a few of the artists that you 
you'd personally recommend or maybe ask me the questions that you would ask me if we were in that process yeah there's no way i'm going to share my screen and show my listing i'll tell you right now <laughs> <There's>, it's something <laughs> If you've seen the 10% the, the series 10% on, on Netflix, uh, I haven't. No. Yeah, but they always are really protective of their fichiers, as they call it, or their files, and the same thing for curator. You know, it's, uh, it's like a, no, that's not what. Maybe, right. That's yeah, no, 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 no. Of course, of course not. I I meant more like on the on the public front, like things that are out there in the public, artists that you know that you care for and that you would recommend. Yeah, but uh, I would need to be paid on that. But anyway, what, what I just. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Fair no, enough. Because that's what it is. Honestly, it's like the only thing I provide is the fact that I know those lists. So every time people do like tweets, it's like, oh, any artist to recommend? I'm like, I can recommend you, but how much do you pay me to do so? It's a bit the same. No, notion. that's fair. It's a bit like, you know, the analogy I often took is a bit like you hire an architect to build your house. He makes a plan. Finally, you don't hire him, but you keep the plan. That's not possible. It would never happen. It's almost like asking the source code of an artist's work. Whenever you do that, you know, it's, it doesn't have any security anymore that you're actually going to pay him. For example, there I've made a collection plan, uh, for, for a specific, I, I can, I guess, sh no, I cannot share this one because I've did for a client that wanted to do a, a collection on urban team. And so I found 20 artists on the team of urban art and et cetera, et cetera. But I'm not sending them the document as long as they haven't paid me for it. So I've just presented it in a way, but uh, never will I send that document as long as I'm not paid because uh, as at the moment I send it, they don't need me anymore. So that's the problem. But usually the question I ask is the same question as any financial advisor is what's your horizon? What's your risk uh, you're willing to take? And do you want a, something very diverse or something that focus on specific collection uh, and which market uh, segment are you focusing on? 0, 0.1 to 1 ETH, 1 to 10 ETH, or 10 ETH plus. So that's the sort of, yeah, things you say. So horizon, risk, typology of things you're looking for, objective behind the collection, and yeah, just the, 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 the diversification level you want to have in it. Are, are you doing this work for people who are like very wealthy and, 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 or, or is, cause, you can you can name your price if you're if you're comfortable with it, but just to just to try to understand if like any person who has even like uh what's what's the minimum budget someone would need yeah that's a better way of doing it what's the minimum budget someone would need in order for it to make sense to get your help in order to build their portfolio yeah well usually I take contract that starts around at the very least 10k for sure. Usually depends on which and what, but uh, usually it was 50 to 100k project projection because that's where you have a budget you actually can do stuff with for example there is this project that they were it's actually a project they want to raffle out artworks to their members and talking holders so the objective for them was to have a lot of different artwork they can raffle to to people right they had a 15 ETH budget for it and for to make that document with just the works links suggested price you should buy it to uh, I was taking like something like 200, 2000 bucks for it, just for the documents. And then if you want to have additional service like artist liaison and work with artists specifically that I have contact with, that is about twice as expensive, but depends. I had, I can work on a share revenue basis as well. I had a uh, early bull run. I had people that sort of wanted to send me, I think 100 K to do a collection plan for them. And I would have kept. 
I think half of any benefit the the the, the fund would have made. So it was a 50-50 base on commission rate. I didn't take took a, a, a upfront payment, uh, but it's really case by case on the on on who I'm working with, uh, what's the objective, etc., what amount of work is going to require it for me. But usually, yeah, people that say, "Oh, if I send you two thousand bucks and you manage something for me," I'm like, "No, you know, it's, if I do it for ten people at two thousand bucks, doesn't really make sense." Except if you get together, but uh, but otherwise, no. Nah, it's uh, I usually have carte blanche or whatever I buy, and you can actually make interesting moves starting from fifty k to one hundred one hundred k. Usually, that's where I'm the most interested in working with. What's the max you've done? Depends. For Sotheby's, it was. Different kind of budget, I guess. It was more of a trying to sell things for them, but I think 100k was perhaps the max. It's not something I've done much, honestly. I've done it times to times, but uh, at some point I just, you know, was working at Sotheby's at different time of job. But yeah, 100k, 200k, something like that was the, the max I've sort of managed within the portfolio. And then without the valorization of it, honestly, but uh, but yeah, it was about that was about that something like that. I think with one hundred k, the most that with the increase was half a million, something like that, at some point with the you know just the the different price changes. Uh, but yeah, something like that, something in half a million. Nice. Um, I, I I had as a question of like, who are you? What type of artist are you eyeing right now? Um, but I. I'm not sure you want to share that now. I wouldn't say no. <laughs> That's the same thing. Yeah. Like, <laughs> follow follow him on follow him on Twitter and maybe you'll get clues. Yeah, you can stalk me on uh, on my wallet, but usually it's the same thing. It's like, oh, I'm looking to buy this. And if I tell the world, then I'm going to get cut off <laughs> from it. So that's not... Yeah, yeah. for sure. Uh, for sure. But yeah, there's this notion of trying to be rare. Uh, it's a bit of this mix between content creation and also retaining information I can actually get paid to share. So it's it's a different, difficult mix. And different it's a f- fine line to walk. Yeah, for sure. I, I get it. I, I, I won't be the one to blame you for it. Um, at this point of the conversation, I have rapid fire questions. And so I'm just going to shoot the question and you can probably answer in just a, a word or a few. Uh, if you could only buy one NFT to hold for the rest of your life, what would it be? Oh, it's terrible. I do accumulate a lot, but I guess the people artwork is might be the, the, the one I'll be the most interested by. One of his edition that I have already, uh, the, the Raw, uh, for example, 100 edition he has, uh, that was the first sort of everyday cut up he had. That might be the thing or Alotamani artwork or Xcopy specifically. Something like that. If you could only buy one digital artist, who would it be? But in your case, I guess you just answered your question. Yeah, people, I guess, or Bill Viola, or um, non-NFT digital artist, Namjoon Park, perhaps, things like that. Okay. Well, Afour Eliasson would be great, but artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you could only hold one crypto for the rest of your life. If. Sure. Eth. Who are your top three people that you vibe with the most in this space at the moment? Well, there is my fiance, Art Girls, uh, that I've worked with for doing this uh, last exhibition I mentioned at the Paris Photo. She's also. Ah, I didn't know she was your fiance. 
Yeah, well, fiance, it's, uh, I, she don't like when I say that because she, she has no rings yet. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> is she there in the background? Yeah, she's right there. She's there. Okay, yeah. Where is the ring? <laughs> no, no, no. Say that because it's on the, it's on the blockchain. <laughs> yeah, because partners always look a bit professional and I didn't find the right word for it. So obviously it's a bit too quirky. Uh, but yes, the, the, I've been with her for, for over a year and a half now and she's also working Web3 amongst other things. She's also a gallerist. And I guess I vibe a lot with her because we do this. <laughs> I hope you do. A lot. Uh, so there's that. Um, and then I guess... Art Gnome is someone I always refer to. I don't connect to him a lot because uh, I'm a bit uh, sort of still in the relationship of I refer to him as a mentor more than anything else, but I'm sure he's, he's not even aware of it, <laughs> to be honest. So, <laughs> but it's someone I look up to all the time and, and hopefully would get to work with at some point in the future. And I guess some other people are like artists in particular. I mean, I do vibe a lot with Delucris is an artist that I guess trusts me a lot and, and, and allowed me to do a bunch of things. And also, I guess my team at Art Crush as well is something, you know, uh, we haven't discussed it here, but I also co-founded a company that exhibits artists across the world on billboards. And that has enabled me to exhibit more than I don't know, half a thousand artists on over 25 different countries in just a year. Uh, so that, that's pretty cool. And, uh, I get a lot of curatorial opportunity like that. So that's, that's a nice thing. It's something that, you know, I do enjoy doing. That's why I keep getting involved in the company. For example, at the moment, we have a, a deal with Clear Channel, which is the leading billboard company in Belgium, but also across Europe. And at the moment, every billboard screens you see in Belgium will show artwork accurated every minute. So every minute, there is about six to 12 seconds of art accurated showed on over, I think, a thousand billboard screens all across Belgium, uh, 24-7 for the next six months. And that's... Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So if you ever go in Belgium, you will most likely see artwork accurated on those uh, billboard screens. And that's something that is quite fantastic to be able to do that I realize I don't talk enough about because uh, most people are not aware of this. You should. <laughs> so I should definitely do because you really should. And we document every initiative. So there's videos of it all the time. There is example of what we've done. If I can perhaps share my screen or one last thing. I'll yeah, please. At Crush, we did something pretty cool during uh, NFT Paris. We rented um, an actual uh, sort of pickup truck. At the back of it, we put a, a fuel generator on it. And, uh, and we, we scrapped, strapped on a, a huge, uh, projection, uh, projector on it. And so we managed to do a sort of, yeah, uh, sauvage exhibition on, you know, the Trocadero. And so we would get on one place. This is sick. Demits, the police would arrive, try to arrest us, but then they <laughs> don't arrest us because there is, you know, we don't break the law here, but they will usually tell, oh, you, you're parking in a Go somewhere else. parking place. So we would move from places to places. We had sort of scooted for different walls beforehand. And so we had this little sort of periple we had and, and, and things people would try, we could find us if they were looking for us. Uh, so we did that as fun, but actually the most of it is initiative like that. So, you know, small, large screens also on, uh, but also on Times Square, as you see here. Uh, and in, Every continent in the world, we did Africa, we did, uh, yeah, LA, Milan, Amsterdam, Paris, Arbazel, Gand, and, uh, we have 
bunch of like permanent screen as well. Uh, we have this permanent uh, wall. And yeah, you have all the artists we exhibited before. And if you look at just yeah, the list of artists, I mean, one, two, three, four by row, eight, and we have 57 pages that are not updated. So yeah, eight times. Wow. That's yeah, is quite that's a lot really of cool. Uh, and that's not up to date with, that's our old version of our website, but it should, uh, exist right on. And we have, so the business model is that we have a membership, uh, that gives you. Yeah. What does the membership get you? Cause I, I was looking at your wallet and I saw them and I thought like this, I don't know what this is about, but it sounds cool. So every membership was done by a, a different artist as well, but pretty much what it gives you is that all the artists we exhibited during the world tour, uh, so there's about 30 artists, they all give us an addition. Uh, and that was what I was trying to solve before we got in our call is that, uh, so we receive addition from artists, they give us for free uh, because we don't make them pay for the world tour. We don't make, take commission of the work. They give us commission for free. They give us addition for free. And every week we raffle and we raffle those addition to the orders. So when you have the membership, you pretty much get your lottery tickets for getting artworks every week. That's in essence what it is. And that still happens and it will continue to happen. Yeah, and so we are aimed to, I think, ruffle away over 300 ETH of value of artwork. Uh, for example, uh, the first one we did was Jack Fried, and there were edition that retails at one ETH each. We had 10 of them, so just that first raffle was a 10 ETH value raffle. Wow. And we keep on doing that. We took a bit of, we were a bit late with artists not meeting it yet, not saying it to us yet. You know, managing 30 artists is, is sometimes really difficult to coordinate, but uh, yeah, it's still happening to this day and, uh, and, and yeah, gives you those benefits. And there's other few benefits as well as, as we build up more daily screens, we will have access to screen all the time. And at some point we expect that any members will be able to decide what art will will be shown on the, on the, on the spillboard and have sort of a permissionless, more decentralized curation approach. Uh, so there's a few ideas here and there, but at the moment, mm, maybe I'll pick one up. Okay. I like this. <laughs> and you get pretty much you get raffle or the raffle of the sign and, and you'll get a, an entry ticket. It's passive. You don't have to engage with Discord or engage with the community if you don't want to. Uh, there's few things we do for the community member that want to engage with it with like specific spot on our open calls, for example. So you have much more chance to be selected as, you know, there's not that many members in comparison to the numbers of artists that participate in our open calls. But the gist of it is, yeah, you get free art every week if you're lucky. I like it. And people like gambling. So maybe you have something, maybe you have something there. Let's move out of, uh, well, let's not completely move out of Web3 just yet. Cause one of the, one of the subjects that I like that we're talking about, cause you're in, you're from the art world. I come from the intellectual proper, pr properly law world. And so one of the concepts that we both know about is droit de suite, which is, you create a piece of art and when that art uh, gets sold uh, in the future, you're supposed to be uh, getting a cut, which doesn't really happen in the real world. How, what, what I'd written down was how could that actually work in practice beyond buying NFTs? Uh, how can we preserve ownership of digital assets uh, happening on the internet? Whew, that's a challenging question. Uh, yeah, it is. 
I guess the blockchain solved that for sure, but uh, still there's no images on the blockchain yet. So it's a, it's a convention, you know, just like anyone, everyone, if everyone agrees on something being the way, then it would be the way, uh, you know, it's like the certificate of authenticity in that world. It doesn't have any legal value. It's just a paper with I say that this thing is authentic and that's all there is to it. It's a reputation-based paper that has a conventional value but has no legal value whatsoever. Um, so that exists and that has been a you know, pierre angulaire of what we've been doing in the art world and even if that's no legal value. So I guess NFT not being recognized as legally as artwork or anything is not an obstacle for it to grow as a market and grow as an artistical ecosystem of its own, I suppose. Mm. As long as people agree to it to be... So let's the, all agree. It would be the way. <laughs> let's let's all agree to that right now. You're you're the president of uh, Web three Art after all, so you can make that decision, and and we'll have to we'll have to abide by it. One last thing, because you told me about the Pixel War, and funny enough, I was in the car with my brother a few weeks ago, and he told me about it as well. And and I like you're the only two people in the world. What was that about? What was it? How how did it happen? Why was it so significant? And if you can show a suit, that would be awesome. But it's not related to NFT at all. It was a, it's a Reddit event that was really sort of impacted by YouTube's communities in France, especially Kameto. And just an example of collaborative art stuff we can do on, on, yeah, on the, on internet pretty much. Uh, this was the last fresco they did for the last one. And it was sort of a, thing of saying, oh, the French are so important in the, in the, in the internet community because you see out of all those initiatives, the French flag is huge. It's right there. It takes like a huge part of it. You even have this Z event there. I mean, you have a bunch of French initiative. Um, and yeah, we've like, you know, you have, you have the face of Zidane. You have a bunch of stuff there. Even Emmanuel Macron, I think, uh, tweeted it on it or something like that. I mean, it was a huge internet phenomenon. It's just to say that, you know, internet has been a way for co-creation with, for decades, uh, and NFT just a sort of a consequence of that. Then we didn't wait to, for NFT to be able to create art collaboratively online. And it was just an example of things that, you know, existed with it. And to say that pixel art is not necessarily something that can be created with the crypto punks or something like that is something that has existed for years and years and years before that. And, and, and so how did it, What was the mechanics? Because the way my brother described it, it was sort of a competition between people. Like the French rallied and and tried to use up the use up the space. And how how what were the dy the dynamics? I think you could place one pixel at the time at times every twelve fifteen seconds or something like that. So everyone can just place one pixels. Uh, so you have to coordinate people to make it so that they actually produce something that looks like something. And so you have plenty of system for that. Uh, we have Excel sheet that say place these colors on this specific X and Y coordinate. Etc. Wow. So it's just crazy. an example of huge cooperation of bunch of people on, on Discord that actually managed to do something cohesive and that's you know especially it, it's listed that over 24 hours i believe so you have to manage time differences there were alliances between p1 
people from different zones of the map, so they sort of agree not to attack each other, and so yeah, they, there was plenty of stuff like that. Um, and you can surely find a lot of YouTube references on it that just explain that and just dig much more into details in depth than I'm doing here. But uh, it's just, yeah, just to see that you don't necessarily need to own stuff to be able to enjoy it. You know, it, it was, it must have been a great experience for anyone that participated. You don't need to earn money out of it. You don't need to pay, oh, that was mine. I have an NFT of it to enjoy it. That's what I say most of the time. If, even if you're just curious about an NFT, you don't need to buy it to be curious about it. You can just check it out. You can just go on Super R and see what's up and see who's selling, see who's, you know, getting interest and traction. And just look at the art, you know, it's, it's, it's already plenty enough. And you might see some fascinating, interesting phenomena that are comparable to what happens at the Pixel War of Reddit. Just interesting bunch of nerds and geeks that get together to create fun stuff online and push the boundaries of what we could collaboratively do on, online. Just to see that, yeah, sometimes we always see, heard about social media in a way that, oh, you know, harassment and mass stuff and negative stuff but there's plenty of there's also beauty there yeah for sure there's as much beauty as there is sadness and and, and ugliness so you know we need to look up to that as well uh so yeah i think it's just important but just to say that there's plenty of way to express and experience experiment art online beside nft and if the blockchain and crypto thing aspect of it is a setback for you then you have plenty of other alternatives also. Uh, there shouldn't be an obstacle to just get interested in digital art and new media creation and new artists and stuff like that. What a beautiful way to close out this conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks to anyone who's listened to this conversation. You should definitely follow Arthur Mort. Like you'll learn a few, uh, a few things or two. Uh, maybe if you, if you look close enough, if you manage to identify one of his wallets, you'll get that alpha without having to pay. But if you have some budget and if you want to start uh, collecting, if you want to build your portfolio, then I, I highly recommend you, you reach out to him because he, he didn't talk about it too much. He didn't show it too much, but he is well connected and he, he, knows his stuff he knows his art and, and i know he'll help you build uh, a very good collection based on on your horizon your budget your needs your risk profile and all of that good stuff don't forget to join the discord don't forget to like follow comment all the all the usual stuff uh, this is a decentralized podcast it could belong to you too so join us arthur mort thank you so much for joining this was nice Thank you, buddy. And hopefully next time <laughs> we'll see. Oh yeah. 100%. We're, we'll see each other soon. I'm, I'm coming to NFT Paris too. So I'm sure we can, oh, oh. we can connect around that. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs>